from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Good Society. Good evening, everyone. I hope you can all hear me in the back, everyone. Excellent. Well, I'm thanking you very much for joining me tonight. Uh, I know you have a busy schedule, and hopefully you'll enjoy learning a bit about uh, Strategic Air Command in the United Kingdom. So there's a lot to talk about. There's very little time. So how to take things, how to omit things, how to get the story told. So imagine, if you will, just for tonight, that you're actually part of a B-47 crew. You've come to the United Kingdom on your very first deployment. and You have to learn a little bit about what you're doing over here in the United Kingdom. But we have the added luxury of being able to travel through time. So not only will we learn the past and the present for yourself as a B-47 crew, but we'll also talk about the future and what SAC did in the years to come. The relationship between SAC and the United Kingdom oddly enough, has been a complex one, primarily because of its implications for political considerations. Decisions were made at the highest levels, the prime minister, the president, and these were decisions that had little to do with day-to-day operations, but were critical to understanding the requirement during the Cold War for having the strategic air command capability here in the United Kingdom. Other considerations, oops, pardon me. Uh, My goodness, technology is wonderful here. I apologize for the delay, and my fingers are trusting our gentleman. While he's coming forward, I'll tell you the second consideration after political was organizational. And this ranged as far afield as having SAC crew members seconded to RAF 4 crews, or even having uh, British guards at SAC bases. And you can imagine having British security guards at SAC bases having absolutely no ill effects. But in fact, this became a problem when British guards decided to slash tires and have a little too much pint to be able to provide the protection that SAC required. So once again, that rose to become a political consideration. Let me advance this, if I may. And finally, an operational consideration. And this really is the day-to-day things that made the difference for SAC in the United Kingdom. And some of this began with issues as simply as the radio frequencies that SAC preferred but were not available here in the United Kingdom. Or more ominously, Air Force pilots from the United States would want to talk about touch-and-go landings or use the afterburner. And British personnel were just baffled and didn't know why they didn't ask for rollers and using reheat. So little things like that made a big difference and complicated the relationship between SAC and its time here in the United States. Ultimately, however, bombers became the critical issue. Surprisingly, they had the shortest duration of time here in the United Kingdom, but were perhaps the most controversial. In addition to the bombers, reconnaissance mission. And I think everybody has some understanding or some inkling of appreciating that SAC used the United Kingdom as its primary base for Europe and the Middle East in conducting reconnaissance operations. With that said, it's also linked to air refueling. Air refueling has become really the mainstay of Strategic Air Command, at least in terms of the strategic mission. So why not have an extraordinary tanker base here in the UK? And that really is its story by itself. But we'll take this just a little bit at a time. To do this, let's pick three dates at random. Now, if any of you have a birthday up here, raise your hand. Anybody? Well, there goes the Mercedes. Sorry. (laughs) 
So let's just pick three dates at random. And the challenge for you is to figure out, once I go through this, why I chose these dates. So with that in mind, let's start with the first. June 4th, 1953. The first B-47s arrived. En masse, three squadrons, an entire wing, 45 B-47s show up here in England. And it was a major event. Lots of generals, lots of air staff present. And you'd think that it would cover the entire history of SAC. Well, well, no, that's not exactly true, Robert. Don't you know SAC bombers have been here long before 1953, and the B-47 wasn't the first jet bomber here. Why are you telling us that this is an important date? Well, that's a good question. Beginning in 1946, high-level discussions were held between Strategic Air Command and the British about basing bombers here in the United Kingdom. The challenge, and I think very few people remember this, is in 1946, SAC was a US Army organization. It was not an Air Force organization. And so its commander, General George Kenney, said, our bombers are really designed to provide close air support in traditional combat operations. So that means we have to base our bombers in Germany, which meant that there was very little interaction between Strategic Air Command and the United Kingdom during the very early years. This changed in 1948 with the Berlin crisis. However, there wasn't this relocation of bombers to the United Kingdom. They still went to Germany, but by and large, they were only visitors here in the United Kingdom. What made a difference in 1948 was the arrival of General Curtis LeMay as the new commander of Strategic Air Command. LeMay understood strategic air power, and he recognized that putting bombers in Germany risked having them destroyed on the ground rather than having them here in the United Kingdom. And that's why it's not until 1950, with the eruption of war in Korea, that SAC begins to deploy its bomber forces directly to the United Kingdom for the sole purpose of having them on alert here to strike the Soviet Union should the need arise. Beginning at this point, we see B-29s, we see tanker KB-29s, and we even see B-50s, and not surprisingly, the B-36. For many people, the B-36 was seen as a visitor. Our B-36 was a visitor here in the United Kingdom. Rather than recognizing that its ultimate mission would be to land here after a strike on the Soviet Union, so there's so much detail, so much to learn. The challenge is, how do you balance that? We're talking about nuclear strikes from the United Kingdom against the Soviet Union. And that's why you ask, what about the bomb? When did the first ones get here? I think it's very difficult to say for certain. I believe that the very first atomic bomb from the United States reached the United Kingdom in 1950, when B-50s from the 97th bomb wing flew here directly and they carried their own atomic weapons with them. The 43rd followed suit, but those weapons were transported on C-124 Globemasters. The importance here is that the bombs were available to be used by SAC bombers, and it's also used to bring those weapons separately because of the fear of losing them over the Atlantic. This created a significant political problem for the RAF, for the United Kingdom, and for SAC in bringing these weapons into the United States and the United Kingdom. Ultimately, the decision was made, let's have our bombers come over without any weapons on board, we'll store the weapons here, and that makes everybody happy. 
unless, of course, you live next to one of these storage facilities. And it's not happy at all. Well, why England? Why not somewhere else? Well, that's a very good question. If you're at England, you're really close to the Soviet Union. And that makes it a good reason to attack targets, but also puts you at risk, not just for SAC, but for you. You're sitting here next to a SAC base. But it also has the advantage of being able to strike targets that are of high importance, command and control facilities, and also Soviet bomber bases. Bombers that were launched from, say, the United States had the luxury of distance. They were very safe to avoid any kind of attack, preemptive or otherwise, but they also had to fly a long way to get here and then on to the Soviet Union. As you look at this, you can see that a bomber that might launch from Hunter Air Force Base, Georgia, would refuel once in flight, and then by the time it reached the United Kingdom and moved onward to the Soviet Union for its attack, it was out of gas, and ideally it could make it back here where it would be refueled, rearmed, and used again. That's not very realistic because I don't think there would have been anyone left at the time, but it still was the theory and the plan behind it. So it wasn't just about bombers, and it wasn't just about refueling. SAC also had a fighter presence in the United Kingdom. Now initially, this was nothing more than the traditional little friends, P-51s, the escorted B-17s, but ultimately for SAC, these fighters were designed to escort the bombers, first from the United Kingdom to four bases like in Norway, and then onward into the Soviet Union. Traditional fighter interceptors, fighter escorts. However, Curtis LeMay, as commander of SAC, decided he didn't have enough bombers, so he converted his fighters into bombers. F-84s, for example, were equipped with nuclear weapons, and they would perform the same maneuver the B-47 would. Fly up, drop the, release the bomb, it would go ballistic. By the time the fighter was gone, the bomb hit, everybody's happy, unless you live there. At which point, the fighter would fly back. At no time, however, in history did any of the F-84s on alert here in the United Kingdom ever get configured with nuclear weapons. If war was to come, those weapons would have been moved from Lake and Heath to the fighter bases, but they never, never, ever did that, which was great because fighters and nuclear weapons just don't mix. Bombers, however, would come over here for roughly 90-day rotations. They would move into these wonderful bases that you see here marked in blue stars, and it was great for the crews initially, but 90 days was a long, long time. You didn't like to be away from your home. You didn't like to be away from your family, especially over income tax time. Because don't forget, in the 50s, men did everything. Having your wife fix the clutch in the car was silly to get her to do that, let alone figure out income tax. It also degraded SAC's capability. Units which deployed to the United Kingdom could not participate in traditional exercises. Consequently, they found themselves less prepared when the guys with the white hats and no smile would show up on their base and say, let's see you execute your war plan. Well, gosh, we've just been practicing our war plan. No, no, we're not interested in what you did yesterday. We're interested in what you did today. And we're going to go to war, but first we're going to give you a 100-question multiple-choice test. Oh, my gosh, they, they flunked the test. They, they were not prepared for the non-warfare community. So SAC quickly realized that these 90-day deployments were ill-conceived and really should be stopped. With that in mind, they introduced what was known as reflex action. 
Reflex was simply a 21-day deployment of a B-47 crew. They'd fly over, land, get acclimated after a little jet lag, go on alert, a couple days off, off they go to London and have a good time. In fact, my dad's only remembrance, his only remembrance, when I asked him about his B-47 time here, what, what, do you, what do you remember, Dad? Well, I was sitting in the officers' club eating dinner, and they announced they had a ticket to Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews in My Fair Lady. And, and I ran back, and I put on my uniform, and I got a train, and I zoomed down there, and I got to see Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews in My Fair Lady. Dad, tell me about flying. Julie Andrews was tremendous. She was fantastic. I loved every minute of it. So for most people who came here in the United Kingdom, the visit was a chance to get away from home for a little while, a chance to <clears throat> perhaps put a pipe organ inside the Bombay and fly it home at a cheap rate, or any other number of other things. But by and large, it was a popular activity once it went to reflex. But it did come to an end, primarily because of the issues we'll talk about here. Authorization to launch. Who says it's time to go? On paper, there would be prior consultations between Strategic Air Command, the United States senior commanders, the president, the prime minister, RAF commanders, etc. Then and only then would the order be given to launch SAC's bomber force. Dad, you were there. Was this true? No, not a bit. What do you mean? Well, if war came, that's what they did on paper. But if that button went off, if that horn went off, we were airborne. And we could let the politicians argue about it later. So the issue of actually authorizing the launch for a B-47 or B-50 or whatever it might be became a contentious issue and ultimately led to a decision to bring the B-47 force home. As I mentioned earlier, another consideration was the proximity of the British populace to these bases. It was not quite as bad as the women at Greenham Common, but it did reflect the concern that British bases were needlessly endangering civilians around the community. And many in Britain at the time were not enthusiastic about that. There was a perception, at least, that many Britons, and this was the view in the United States, that many Britons held a rather left-wing view that they just didn't understand the real threat to the Soviet Union and were more inclined to be tolerant. However ill-conceived that undesigned, that argument, that belief might be, it still reflected a recognition in the United States alone that Britain was not really America's aircraft carrier. In fact, we, there were times when we might not even be best friends. But I think that's an extreme view, but it did in some circles color the final decision. Another consideration was money. It cost a lot of money to have American forces here in the United Kingdom, and probably Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense at the time, saw things only in terms of an accountant, in terms of money, and he introduced a program called Clearwater. And the goal here was to bring home overseas forces, not just in the United Kingdom, but in Germany and France, elsewhere, Japan, to reduce the gold flow issue. All that money was going out to other countries. And the United States was very busy getting ready to really spend a fortune on a horribly conceived war in Southeast Asia. And spending money to put bombers here in the United Kingdom was just not a prudent thing to do. Ultimately, 
The final reason that the bombers came home was the ICBM. In April of 1964, Strategic Air Command ceased to be a bomber command with missiles and instead became a missile command with bombers. There were more missiles on alert in 1964 than there were bombers. And by 1965, that number had increased and would continue to increase to a point where there would be 1,101 ICBMs on alert and fewer than 400 bombers on alert. With that in mind, the need to base bombers in the United Kingdom came to an end. But that didn't mean the end of operations by Strategic Air Command. So our next date is this. With apologies to my guest, Chris. You'll notice that this is a CIA U-2. Well, the CIA U-2 arrived on this date. C-124 landed, the doors opened, they pushed the airplane out, they assembled it. But there were SAC personnel present. And there were SAC personnel embedded within the command structure. And the goal was to get SAC crews, CIA crews, acclimated to operations out of the United Kingdom, ultimately for overflights. Curiously, perhaps because it was now an Eden administration instead of a Churchill administration, the United Kingdom balked at this and said, we will not have overflights from the United, from the United Kingdom, and instead, you can go to Germany, which they did. But this is rather ironic, because there were a lot of reconnaissance flights from the United Kingdom over the Soviet Union, not least of which were the Jujitsu flights and RB-45s flown by RAF crews, uh, airplanes seconded by SAC, and these continued. So it was a first wave of Jujitsu number one, and then ultimately they were going to do, oh, pardon me, an additional series of flights program called Pepsin, which they canceled. They flew a second jujitsu mission. And then ultimately, the one you see here that took place in 1954, a B-47, a reconnaissance B-47, took off out of the United Kingdom, overflew the Soviet Union, running gun battle, came back, landed at minimum fuel, and then briefed the British Prime Minister and other senior officials about its accomplishment. So it's, it's really odd to think, why would you not want to have additional reconnaissance missions from the United Kingdom when in fact you've already had those. What's, what's the deal? Well, nonetheless, there would be no overflights from the United Kingdom, but one event made a profound difference in the way reconnaissance missions from the United Kingdom took place. On the 1st of June, 1960, 1st of July, 1960, an RB-47 was off the Vermont's coast in the Soviet Union, and it was shot down. The pilot, which I apologize for the graininess of the image here, the pilot in the upper right, Vasily Polyakov, shot him down in a MiG-19, and the crew of six, three ejected, one perished in the water, and two, John McCone and Bruce Olmsted, survived and spent time in the Lubyanka along with Gary Powers. But the issue that created the problem for SAC in the United Kingdom was that the British government, the senior officials, had to somehow be able to explain why this operation took place, particularly so close after the U-2 loss on the 1st of May, 1960. And consequent to this, there was a decision to require every single US reconnaissance flight from Britain be approved 30 days in advance at the prime ministerial level. 
So every sortie, every month, would come on a long list. And these are actually now declassified at PRO at Q. And you can sit down and look at these. And there's letters from the chief of the air staff to uh, certain ministers, and they recommended approving them or not approving them. And that way you can understand and appreciate that in one month there might have been 30 missions from RAF Bryce Norton, and each one had to be approved. If not, then perhaps they could be rescheduled uh, if the weather was bad. But by and large, the goal was to make sure that there was a British thumbprint on every US reconnaissance flight. There was an exception to this. And that was a program called Speedlight. Speedlight was related to the Soviet nuclear weapons tests at Novaya Zemlya. It began with the Sarbomba, the very first 50 megaton bomb popped off. And these simply had to be approved sort of on block. They would say, all right, we have a notion that there's going to be Soviet tests during this week. You're cleared to fly missions any day you want during this week. Let me show you something that might be of interest. Hiding here, right up around there, is where the actual Sarbomba test took place. And if you read most literature, the crew who flew the Speedlight mission to monitor that said they were as close as 20 miles from the detonation. And the heat from the detonation melted the skin of the aircraft, peeled off the lettering. And in fact, one source said that the airplane was so radioactive when it landed, they had to scrap it. In fact, the airplane flew on for another 35 years. And if you'll notice, that little circle right there in that box, that's 20 nautical miles. If they were that far, they were over Novaya Zemlya, and there was certainly no likelihood of surviving. In fact, Speedlight was 200 nautical miles away. So the reason I share that with you is you have to take everything that you read with a grain of salt, unless I wrote it and then it's canon. <laughs> 15 years. The SR-71 has such a reputation here in the United Kingdom, as I think Paul Crickmore will be fond of saying, after its visit at Farnborough in 1974 when it set the transatlantic speed record, and uh, just a wide variety of events and of course, there's that political debate, especially in 1973, when the United States requested operations from Mildenhall to be able to fly the SR-71 over the Middle East to address the questions of the October War in 1973. And the conclusion that everybody has reached is that the British decided they didn't want to do that because they didn't want to anger the Arabs and suffer the ill effects of an oil embargo. Consequently, they canceled permission for the SR-71 to base here in the United Kingdom. Actually, that's not true. Henry Kissinger decided not to base the SRs here in the United Kingdom because he felt that the requirements to do so, which had been negotiated since 1969 and agreed upon in 1970, was something he didn't want to follow up with. He didn't want to favor those. And that included sharing the intelligence with the British, keeping them posted on every flight and allowing them to approve every departure and every landing, and also the issue of refueling them. So it isn't just a case of we don't want you to do that because we in Britain are afraid of an oil embargo, because ultimately that's what happened anyway. There was, was no choice. The United Kingdom joined the Netherlands and South Africa and all the other countries that the Arabs decided to criticize at the time. By the time we got around to having two SR-71s, the permanent detachment at RAF Mildenhall in 1984, things looked like it was finally stable. 
It only lasted six years, and then the SR came home. This had little to do with the United Kingdom and more to do with the issues of who would pay for the missions. Because in those last six years, most missions from Mildenhall were flown over the Barents Sea and were paid for by the United States Navy because they needed information about Soviet fleet movements. But with the rise of particular satellites and other sources, the United States Navy said, we're just not going to pay the money anymore. SAC, if you want to do this, it's got to come out of your pocket. SAC wisely chose not to. And with that, the SR-71 came home. And the one that's at Duxford, by the way, was shipped over here. They didn't fly it back. They put it, disassembled it, put it in a bunch of boxes, and shipped it over here via the surface ship. And then it colluded and plotted and made its way through all the motorways and finally is on display at Duxford. So if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to go by and do so. For the reconnaissance world, though, it's a rose by any other name. SAC went away in 1992, but Air Combat Command still flies reconnaissance missions out of the United Kingdom. But it's also diversified. This particular airplane, the Cobra Ball, would not have been seen here during the SAC days simply because it was designed to monitor Soviet ballistic missile reentry. And there really isn't a Soviet reentry area. The launch facilities are in Plasetsk and elsewhere, and most of the reentry areas are in Kamchatka. But because it developed new capabilities, the Cobra Ball can now conduct launch phase intelligence collection. And so when the Soviets decide to launch a sea launch ballistic missile, when the Russians do, see, that's, I still call them the Soviets. So if anyone's from Russia, please forgive me, comrade. At any rate, the ability of SAC through its legacy commands, the Air Combat Command in particular, to monitor and to expand its capability still functions in the United Kingdom today. Another consideration is whether or not there's the potential in the future for a joint command. The discussions to relocate the RC-135 fleet from the United States from RAF Mildenhall to, I believe it's RAF Watersham, uh, to perhaps even integrate crews because RAF crews train at Offutt with air combat crews, air combat command crews, and they actually sit in the same mission, same airplane, and they fly together. So it's very common to do that. I don't necessarily see this happening, but it is still nonetheless a possibility. And finally, there's been a decrease in the number of missions from the United Kingdom because of what's called war fighting. They're all off at Al-Udeed trying to follow Taliban terrorists in Afghanistan or monitor events over Syria. But with recent events, in fact, last week, a Soviet, or Russia, there we go again, Russian flanker intercepted a U.S. Navy P-3 and flew by very aggressively, according to the press releases. Uh, with the increase in those missions, there's very likely to be a continued presence here for the reconnaissance assets of Strategic Air Command's legacy within Air Combat Command. So our last date, and again, no winner assigning the date, so we don't have to give away the car. European Tanker Task Force is born. There had been the Spanish Tanker Task Force, and Spain decided in 1974 that it didn't want to have anything to do with the American presence there because of, well, oil. So they invited the United States to leave. And Americans in Europe were very upset about this because they needed the tanker presence in Spain to refuel fighters, especially should war erupt to fold the gap or in Germany. Nonetheless, it got moved. And the Tanker Task Force relocates to Royal Air Force Mildenhall. 
And that really became the ultimate place for SAC people to visit. If you were in SAC at the time and you didn't fly bombers and you didn't fly reconnaissance, the only way you were going to get to go anywhere cool was to be a tanker crew. And you'd come over to the tanker task force and you'd learn all about the pubs outside the gate at Milton Hall and you'd fly neat missions. And if you were really, really nasty and bad, they'd send you to Elf One in Saudi Arabia and then be miserable down there and you'd come back and be good and cooperate here in England. But there has always been a tanker presence as far back as the KB-29s. And it's interesting to think about these because when we think about refueling bombers on a mission, we, we do that with a present mindset, one of today. And we know that the bomber's flying here and the tanker's flying there. And we're going to look at our watch and coordinate the refueling. When the emergency war plan, the, the single integrated operations plan were first developed, those kind of accurate timings were just non-existent. So you'd, you'd say, well, the bomber's going to be here Thursday, and the tanker's going to be here Thursday? Maybe they'll be here at the same time. It wasn't quite that bad, but perhaps you can then appreciate we didn't have SATCOM, we didn't have cell phones, we, we barely had HF radio to be able to coordinate this. And it was a very great challenge to be able to have tankers in the United Kingdom dedicated to support bombers coming from the United States. If you recall those B-47 missions, whether they were the 90-day rotations or the reflex, they came over here and they brought their own tanker support. The bombers would go to one base, their KC-97 tankers would go to another, and they would actually practice. Now, in the event of a real operational war and the war breaking out, the bombers would take off, they'd fly off to their targets, and the tankers they practiced with would refuel the returning bombers. They weren't going to refuel the striking bombers. So think back to that slide about why England. And, and you can see that the value of having the tankers here was that there was a greater liaison between the tanker and the bomber crew, and that bombers could actually simulate the receivers that the tanker crews would refuel. So it became a, a very efficient operation. And that legacy maintained through the establishment, really, of coming to RAF Mildenhall. There's just nothing more you could do as a SAC crew dog than get a trip to Mildenhall. In fact, whether I was in tankers or whether I was in reconnaissance, Hoghenge, as it became known, the, the great visit to Mildenhall was really the, the best place to go. And some of the best stories about tankers and reconnaissance flights are from Milton Hall. So it was a wonderful place to go. And, and this particular Q model was actually designed to refuel the SR-71. And the Beale Bandits really managed to put little stickers up in every loo and train station between here and East Midlands. So if you see that, remember the, as I used to tell people, there are no Qs in reconnaissance. So those KC-135 Q tanker crews were just dilettantes and wannabes. And, um, <clears throat> I'll leave that for another time. There were two main refueling events from Milton Hall, two things that were profoundly significant in the evolution of SAC in the United Kingdom. The first of these was El Dorado Canyon. And it had more to do with not just the introduction of the KC-10 to its first combat operations. The Gucci boys really wanted in on some operation. They were capable of doing that. They had enough fuel on board, the legs to get there, and in fact, this provided the first operational refueling of an SR-71 on a reconnaissance mission. But most importantly, and this is something that very few people have appreciated, 
John Chain, Jack Chain, who was the commander-in-chief of SAC at the time, was furious about this entire operation. He said there was no need to have F-111s operate from England and fly halfway around the Mediterranean just to get there. You didn't need the Navy to do that. That should have been a SAC mission from day one. And as a consequence of that, Chain began to develop a tactical role for strategic air command. Bomber crews would go out to Nellis and fly red flag. Tanker crews would learn about gas in the grass, refueling as low as 4,000 feet above the ground. So El Dorado Canyon's impact on SAC as an organization was profound. And that paid off during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Because SAC tankers would operate from here, and whether it was C-141s or C-5s coming from the United States with arms, with troops, whether it was heading back with wounded or whatever it might happen to be, the tanker presence here in the United Kingdom, as well as the bombers at RAF Fairford, proved essential to the entire equation for how to convert SAC from a strategic nuke till they glow mission to a tactical bomber operation. In fact, in many ways, it really justified the thinking that the original commander of SAC, George Kinney, had when he said, bombers are nothing more than just big battlefield attack aircraft. So Desert Shield and Desert Storm was really significant for SAC, for the United Kingdom, and it reassured Americans that the need to have a tanker base here was top rate. That didn't last very long. Because somebody started to say, you know, it costs a lot of money to have a base at Milton Hall, and we're going to shut down American bases here in America. America. That's what we're here, America. And we, we, well, I just don't know how we can afford having a base in England if we're going to have to shut down a base here in the United States. So maybe, maybe Milton Hall needs to go. And, you know, let's just move it somewhere. I, that's it. So we're actually going to move it to Germany. Yeah, that's a good idea. Wait a minute. <clears throat> You have a beautiful base at Mildenhall. You're going to close that. You're going to convert something in Germany to a new base. You're going to have to spend a fortune to build that into what Mildenhall wants. German-American relations aren't necessarily the best, and we can see recently how far they're diverging. Uh, ultimately, somebody wisely said, you know, we have a good thing in Mildenhall. Maybe we just need to keep the airplanes there. And that's my hope, because I think Millenall has a profound tradition within SAC and within its legacy, Air Mobility Command. Right now, the 100th Air Refueling Wing at RAF Millenall is the only legacy SAC organization deployed overseas. And, and that's just amazing. The big square D on the tail is just, uh, it's part of SAC's history. It's part of Britain's history. And it's great to see them together. But ultimately, the issue of whether or not you need it at Millenall or Germany is driven by this. You can't get the silver bullet airplanes like the F-35 and the F-22. You can't get them from the United States to the Middle East. You can't get them from the US to Germany. You can't get them anywhere without a tanker. And very few people appreciate the need for the tanker. After all, Curtis LeMay says, you know, tanker guys are always there when you need them, but they never get the glory. And there's sort of a vulgarism. Nobody kicks <clears throat> without tanker gas, and it rhymes, so just imagine it yourself. But I think for those who fly the tankers, there's a profound understanding that you, you can't go to war. As one commander told me, without us, without tankers, the war stops. No operations today could be undertaken without 
refueling, simply because of the ranges involved and the decreasing legs built into these silver dollar fighters. If you want stealth capability in an F-35, you can't have drop tanks on it, so you've got to burn internal gas, and that means tankers, and that means Mildenhall. Well, we've come full circle, and it's now time to think as our P-37 crew, what lessons have we learned? Well, the relationship between the United Kingdom and SAC was one that allowed the United Kingdom to maintain its sovereignty. At least on paper, it decided when the bombs could be launched. It decided how they would get here. It would decide on reconnaissance missions. So ultimately, the United Kingdom retained its sovereignty. And that was, I think, a good thing. For SAC, it created an opportunity, and I think Dwight Eisenhower said this very well, if the British want to benefit from the intelligence that the U-2 provides, well, if Khrushchev wants to throw nuclear rockets at America because U-2s come from America, maybe if the British understood that they would end up having Russian rockets lobbed at them, they would appreciate the political sensitivity associated with conducting these operations. So ultimately for SAC, having this presence in the United Kingdom shared the risk. It wasn't just going to be American bases that would bomb should war erupt. It would be British bases bombed as well. And that actually diluted the entire potential strike force and gave bombers in every location an opportunity to conduct their operations. The good news is that in any case, this all led to a workable arrangement. Over the entire spectrum from 1946 to 1992, SAC and the United Kingdom amazingly worked very well. And I'm thrilled to death to be one of the people that came here and enjoyed the British hospitality and it loved every minute of it. And I still miss those trips over here. It was a lot of fun to be able to say, hey, you're going to fly a combat sent tour to Mildenhall because that meant a, good food, good friends, good family, and most importantly, a chance to go fly some really neat missions. Uh, perhaps the most famous one out of Mildenhall in a combat scent, John Box Elder was his name. He flew RC-135U around the U.S. or the Soviet carrier Minsk, and the Minsk wouldn't illuminate its radar. So John tried to figure out any way he could to get the radars to come up. So nothing happened. So he flew well behind the Minsk dropped the gear, dropped the flaps, turned on the landing light, and began an approach. <laughs> it lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> so John vacuumed up all the material off the Minsk, and he headed home. And, and that's the sort of legend that comes from flying here in England. And it was part of what many people look back on with fondness. There were some dark times, airplanes that didn't come home, crews that didn't come home. But by and large, I think SAC in the UK was about a relationship that worked. And I thank you all for your time this evening and I'm happy to entertain any questions. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com.
aerosociety.com for more information.